Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Good to be with you. It's hard to believe it's another week past. It, it really is remarkable. I said it to someone yesterday that, you know, as you get older, time flies in general and all that. But I think everybody in every generation feels that way every Friday night. It's already Shabbos again. It really is something. But uh, hopefully things will get back to normal and our schedules be more full with a lot of events and everything that we anticipate. Even as this first anniversary of the lockdown approaches. We bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow. You know, Purim was the was when it essentially became a really serious threat here in the United States. And Purim is three weeks from today. So we are approaching the first anniversary, and boy, do we hope that we're going to be turning a corner soon. I still get this mixed messages from Israel, by the way. Major article in the New York Times about how the vaccinations in Israel and the data uh, from all the vaccinations has now proven uh, that the vaccinations are going to work, at least it seems that way, uh, are going to work against this pandemic. And then, of course, the lockdown continues. The airport remains closed. And even though they say the numbers are going down, Israel's not acting in a way that would indicate they're going down. Do you, do you think there's mixed messaging or they're just being overcautious? Well, I think there's a lot of mixed messaging generally. First of all, I hope that on this point, people have learned the lesson from last year. Yeah, let's when hope. unfortunately many people took sick, and uh, you know when you see in some communities in London, they said that um, uh, more than half, maybe even two thirds of the Haredi community has had it. Wow. Uh, we saw this week the death in within a twenty four hour period of four of the Gedolim, and the, I mean, all of these things should be wake up calls, and people think because they were inoculated that they don't have to wear a mask anymore, and it's just not true. And the message from Israel where you already have 50% of the people perhaps have been inoculated and uh, they want to buy Purim or so they, they expect that the uh, vast majority over 16 and now they're doing children younger and younger and you're seeing even babies now susceptible to it. Oh, Pregnant women, we have tragic cases every day arising. So people, even if you have the shots, you can still be a carrier, they say. Uh, Israel's unique in the sense that because of the setup with the insurance companies, the health insurance, they are able to collect data better than anywhere else in the world, literally, and to analyze the impact and to follow the trends. And the, and the hope was to be able to lift the the, uh, the lockdown at people it, 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 for the economic reasons, psychological reasons. I know that people suffer greatly from it, and already after a year, a lot of um, uh, mental health experts are warning about the implications for young people and for older people. Mm-hmm. And the, so in Israel, they, are, they see that the lockdown has helped. It enables them to gain control because a single individual coming back can infect hundreds and hundreds of people. They have documented it. So the hopefully the airports will open uh, gradually and the businesses will be able to start coming back in life. Maybe by Pesach will be uh, be more or less uh, normal, I, although I don't think the hotels will be open yet by Pesach. I think more likely May and June we'll see um, the tourism business, and I know there's a lot of pent-up demand for people 
wanting to go, including me. That's an understatement. That is an understatement. And we we kept looking at Pesach, obviously, as being an important demarcation. But as much as a hotel could flip a switch in a way, you know, to to reopen or at least go through a slow um, uh, reopening, it's it's, it's impossible to do that for Pesach, obviously. So that that dream of having those hotels open by Pesach, I think, is completely uh, uh, unrealistic at this point. Uh, but hopefully right afterwards, as you say, and uh, and hopefully the data will continue to show that 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 they can defeat or or we uh, as a world that's vaccinating can defeat this pandemic and hopefully quicker rather than later. The other thing is that um, this this whole issue of what Israel's responsibility is regarding its neighbors. Okay. I understand that Israel obviously has a responsibility to make sure that all of its citizens, Jew, Arab, other, uh, all get vaccinated. That makes sense. Their their residents and their citizens need to get vaccinated. What is their responsibility, if any, regarding the PA, uh, a group that essentially, I don't, I don't think anybody's been vaccinated there yet? Well, very few. And if they would stop paying hundreds of millions of dollars for the terrorists, and the uh, rewarding them for those who, who have killed Jews or, or been involved in terrorism against uh, Israel. They could afford to, to buy it. They, they did order from Russia uh, the uh, Sputnik inoculation. But the, uh, the fact is that they were lax. You have to credit Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, and I heard this from the head of one of the drug companies. Uh, he said, look, he himself got on the phone. Other heads of state didn't, but he got on the phone. He spoke to the companies. He ordered the stuff. He made sure that Israel got a supply. And even there, it, it's sometimes um, uh, difficult to keep up, uh, even though they, they seem to be maintaining the, a, a, a process of inoculation, even if not at the same rate. Mm-hmm. So under the Oslo Accords, health responsibilities are the PAs, not Israel. And in the top of it, the, the PA... Palestinian Authority does not cooperate with Israel, and Israel has offered it, and Israel provided PPE and other stuff all along, protection, protective equipment, other stuff uh, throughout this period, and they they get no credit for that. They don't get any acknowledgement that that they've done it. They've also now given, I think, the first couple thousand shots, and they've committed to up to twenty thousand. Uh, vaccinations for healthcare workers and first responders and others but it's the negligence of the PA it's not Israel's responsibility neither in Gaza nor in the West Bank to provide shots Israeli Arabs get it in the same way that Israelis get it yeah. it's not that there's no discrimination even if they're not citizens like East Jerusalemites could apply also you can't hermetically seal off the territory so for Israel's sake you don't you want to see as many Palestinians now um, inoculated as possible uh, because they interact. They come to stores. They come into the parks. They, they, there is much more um, uh, opportunity to spread the disease again. Uh, so Israel has encouraged them to do it. But it's with everything else. You know, they refuse to take the tax money, and Israel gets blamed. They refuse to to cooperate on security. Israel gets blamed when it's the Palestinian Authority. And now that they're headed to an election. They become again. We see again the extreme statements and the declarations, where in much of the Arab world we're seeing that they are changing textbooks, that they are, um, you know, picking up the spirit of the Abraham Accords, even if sometimes it's slowly. Um, but there, we don't see the change. And Israel can't shake 
this blood libel, for some reason, and I guess you know there are a lot of other cases I could cite, but for some reason this thing just continues to escalate, where Israel gets blamed for the PA and its citizens not getting inoculated, and and in the same breath they're all saying it's Israel's responsibility. That's the part that's so frustrating, as you just described. They're not responsible at all, but the enemy and those who hate Jews and Israel are using it as an opportunity to spread terrible things about the government of Israel. They have, and they you have members of Congress who have engaged in this and uh, didn't bother to check on the facts. Israel did put out an op-ed piece and some articles. They, they tried. No one wanted to publish it, where they told the truth about what, what they've done. I mean, literally, they shopped it around to different papers, and they didn't take it, new sources. Uh, finally, I think it was published, uh, uh, and now has gotten some circulation. But the damage is done. The blood yeah. bubble has yeah. been made. Yeah. That in the UN and other places, including Congress of the United States, the charge in calling on Israel and and, and using it as a as a battering ram against them, um, and yet you don't hear the apologies. To say, well, we didn't know, we didn't understand, and that you'll never hear. Yeah. All right. The election lists are now complete for the election coming up on the twenty third of March. Any observations, anything unusual? What did you learn from the lists that were submitted this week? Nothing much. I mean, there were no mergers. There were a lot of divorces. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think that there was much to to highlight in terms of, of what the decisions that were made. Well, Smotrich uh, and when Ben... When you see the oh, people who have disappeared from the scene, you remember how when Huldai, the mayor of Tel Aviv, came in, eight seats right away. Right. They, and and right. I on the show said, just wait and see, it settles down. You see the same thing with uh, labor. You see the same thing uh, now that the they were not able to merge with the, the other parties. Uh, and the reason for the merger and why Netanyahu encouraged uh, others to merge is not to lose the votes, because if you don't reach the 3.25%, right. 3. those votes are lost. It's right. not like they get handed. So this way, if you merge in parties that are marginal, each one brings 2%, then you get to the 4 and and you get those seats. So I don't know, if they, you know, and, and how the media played it, that there's a, a, an anti-Netanyahu majority and they, but they lump together parties that will never sit together in a government. You'd have to assume, right? You'd have to assume they wouldn't sit together. Although, no, it's although pretty le- good, safe assumption. Right, although, <laughs> although, although, they, le- although Lieberman gave indications last time that he might be open to some crazy ideas, so who yeah. knows? But, because but pop- the religious parties are not going to sit right. with some of those parties. Others are right. not going to, so it's right. not a... Politics makes strange bedfellows, but only to a certain extent. Yes. Smotrich and Ben Gvir being together, does that guarantee, finally, that that group of what we'd call now right-wingers you know, have the possibility of gaining seats in the Knesset? It enhances it. That's why Netanyahu uh, encouraged it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it becomes a flashpoint that honest, uh, as they call them, or um, that it that an extreme right party, right. but that makes everybody else look more moderate. Right. So, <laughs> you know, if you keep introducing more extremes on left and right, then everybody else appears to be in the center. Yeah, that's worked in this country, hasn't it? Uh, <laughs> to a large degree. Um, and uh, and Bennett, I mean, so everything, aside from those two, right, this combination of uh, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, aside from those two running as first and third on their list, um, that's basically it. I mean, Bennett will run as an independent party, Gidon Saar, Netanyahu, right. obviously, Avigdor Lieberman. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, this is, I guess, why you reacted the way you did when I first asked you. It's sort of like what we've seen a couple of times before already. 
You know, unless there's a major shift in Israeli, you know, electorate voting that we're not aware of. You know, and again, polls are very inaccurate, as you always tell us in Israel. But unless there's a major shift, we're sort of on the same road that we've seen the previous three times. And that's why Israelis keep telling me that their greatest concern is not the outcome, but the fifth election. Oh, gosh. And, oh, and, gosh. Uh, it's not something that oh, anybody could look forward to. I think that the um, – and when you see how many people who are, are probably not going to be around already, we know Eisenkant didn't run, right. and Yalon. Right. I mean, people who had following and who uh, have served Israel. Gans is barely uh, in Gans there. Gans is, is right. probably uh, finished. Um, uh, Kabi Ashkenazi is not running, uh, and um, others – what happened to the life? What happened to the lifelong government people? <laughs> How did we get into this era where people dip their toe in and then leave after a year? <laughs> well, it's the nature of the system, also, that people can just proclaim, you know, the party, and then they become the media loves them for the immediate time. And Netanyahu is a political genius. Uh, he, he seems to always um, play it right or strategize right. Uh, but the media loves to latch onto somebody new, and they make them the focal point and saying they're the next one, they're the one who can challenge and who can beat Netanyahu. When there's no evidence right now that there, there's a coalition to defeat him. Right. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and AchimSegal.com, and the AchimSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Kosher Halftime Show brought to you by the Rothenberg Law Firm this coming Sunday. Do what everyone's going to be doing on Sunday night during halftime. Make sure to watch the kosher halftime show. We should mention, by the way, the U.S. Senate has voted to keep the embassy in Jerusalem. I assume a formality, but you want to know something, Malcolm? When I read it, I said to myself, with all the things that President Biden has eliminated from the Trump agenda, you can't take this for granted that the Senate went ahead and kept the embassy in Jerusalem. Well, first of all, he did commit to keeping the embassy in Jerusalem and to um, and the recognition of Jerusalem. We have seen some statements this week about um, the, the specialness of the relationship, but at the same time, uh, greater outreach than pledging to renew the aid to the Palestinians and opening up their office in Washington again, and you know certainly a different tone. And do you know attitude. if he's spoken to Bibi yet? Has, he, has he spoken to the prime minister? No, he has not. Wow, that's but unusual. There have been connect, uh, contact between uh, Jake Sullivan. I think the the um, Tennessee, or someone else with uh, with Israel, but um, you know there there are many other leaders that didn't oh, okay. uh, get calls yet. And is it a message? We'll only know in time. Is it um, you know is it part of process? Just that he's he's overwhelmed. Uh, but if you look at the list of leaders who didn't get calls yet, it's. Um, it's not unusual. Wow, interesting. Uh, we sh- and, and by the way, so many people have asked me to ask you this. I mean, uh, we see what happened yesterday. Uh, a member of the United States House of Representatives stripped of her, you know, committee memberships. I mean, there are there are some pretty hateful people on both sides of the aisle, and I say this specifically in this forum because a lot of them are anti-Israel and are very very clear about their BDS feelings. I, I mean, should should there be an effort? Uh, from Jewish leadership and from uh, from Israel-loving members of the United States House of Representatives to silence them as well and maybe strip them of their committee memberships? Well, I hope that the, there will be greater demand for equitable treatment uh, that 
someone who who made the statements, including anti-Semitic statements um, that Taylor Green made, right. uh, that now others will be held to account, not just on on statements of the anti-Semitic nature, but of you know hostile natures or lying about uh, things. That there has to be greater accountability, and and as you said, there are those who. Uh, have always gotten a pass one way or another or always find an excuse for not everybody should be held to account for something that they said when they were a college student or an event that they participated in that people can say that they made mistakes and if they publicly address it but more importantly by their behavior show that they really were not uh, the person that uh, that did it so i don't think every time uh, somebody dredges up something from the internet that that person should then be subject to uh, public humiliation or or expulsion or whatever. But certainly those who have consistently engaged in pro BDS and, and ho- very hostile comments towards Israel and anti-Semitic remarks do have to be held to account. And now that somebody from the a right, so maybe they will feel the obligation that people who are from the left will also be held to account. Well, I hope there'll be somebody in Washington brave enough to speak up and, and start that campaign. And you know, the administration did say and, and uh, that they adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism and will actively pursue it. And uh, that covers and gives you the gr- a base for judgment, which is the importance of the IRA definition, That it, it and it gives case examples of, uh, of what is anti-Jewish hatred, better word than anti-Semitism, right. and the uh, so hopefully that will, will mean something, too. Uh, the U.N. Secretary General is calling for an international peace conference, bringing back the quartet to get involved. Uh, I mean, it, we, we know that this four-year respite from all of this because of President Trump had to end at some point. I get that. Uh, is it going to be a similar type of, uh, of effort on uh, by the quartet to get uh, both Israel and the PA? I guess it's the PA representing the other side uh, to the table. There will be a push to, to try and reinvigorate it, but the conditions have not changed. That And, and the people understand that there's no immediate path to, to change. First of all, the PA is going to, to an election. Uh, we don't know yet what Abbas is going to do. We don't know whether it'll actually happen. This is, the, they're in their 17th year of a four-year term. And, uh, you know, there were times in the past when they were said and scheduled elections and they did not take place. Uh, so that's one thing that preoccupies them. And usually they, they play a harder line during that time. Second, they, uh, the changes that have taken place in the region, especially the Abraham Accords, have created a whole new circumstance. And you see that the countries are not backing away from it. I hope that the United States will live up to the agreements and not reverse on the Western Sahara or the sales to UAE or arms sales and some of the other uh, arrangements that were made uh, to, uh, that would undermine uh, the progress and the direction Kosovo this week uh, signed a deal to move their embassy to Jerusalem. They adopted the IRA definition, although it's a very small place and it's a, a million one hundred thousand people. Mm. It is a Muslim majority country and uh, very excited about their new, this uh, progress and, and and the signing of this deal, which they've sought for years. Uh, so the, the the PA has to go through really revolutionary change, which nobody sees in the offing. We don't see anybody who's rallying the troops against uh, Abbas. 
And if Abbas runs, the likelihood is either Hamas wins, which Jordan and Egypt this week expressed a lot of concern about, or that Abbas wins and you continue the corruption and all of the you know, a, a kleptocracy <laughs> that has alienated not only Israel, but many, most of the Arab countries. They cut the aid this year by 80% to the PA. And the PA doesn't, you know, shrugs it off because, of course, and then they blame Israel for, for whatever problems they, they encounter when it's really completely unrelated to Israel. It's what their own behavior and uh, misdeeds brought on. So the PA is... is um, now in a very um, interesting state, but with the fact that the State Department said we're going to renew the aid, uh, they haven't said how much, they haven't said what the conditions would be. Hopefully there will be uh, pressure with it to to um, see re- real reforms and real changes, uh, but that only, we'll only know down the road. I'm laughing only because of what you... The the first part of what you said and uh, and reiterated as you uh, as you presented on this, I mean, with that in mind, can't the Secretary General, you know, uh, um, project an attitude of let's wait and see with all the you know how many factors you just went through in terms of you know what needs to be in place in order for a real Israel Arab you know peace negotiation to restart, and and most of it, of course, if not all of it, is on their side, is on the other side. But th- that's never the attitude of let's wait and see and let's, you know, let's set things up for success in the future. It's let's get back to the table, ASAP. Well, we saw in the, in the last few years that that progress was made without the PA, and the PA stuck in its position. The economic conditions there worsen. Young people, more than two-thirds, want to leave. Uh, they, they are unhappy with the situation. The crackdown then that takes place by the security forces against any manifestation of opposition. Wow. And they, you know, even when candidates like Dahlan arise, they threaten him, and he, uh, I don't think he can still go to the West Bank, and he's, he's, he's subject to arrest. They did try him in absentia, so they probably put him in jail. Uh, and there's no one else emerging, and Abbas, you know, is, I think, 85. Yeah. And so, you know, it's ridiculous to think that there's anything that's going to inspire change or that they're going to have the courage to take on their textbooks so that they will do anything uh, in a meaningful way. And then, of course, they'll just blame Netanyahu. And that gets echoed then automatically without people checking what are the facts on the ground, what, are, what do people really think. And, the um, you know, there is still opposition to normalization, but the numbers are increasing all the time. The opposition is being... Um, diminished, at least, as they experience it and as as they see it, except in UAE, where there is a very positive reaction. Uh, In Saudi Arabia, there's still a majority that that doesn't want normalization, and it's true in many other countries. Uh, And so it'll be going slow. But the PA then puts the obstacles because they want to break this momentum. Is he a brilliant politician, or meaning Abbas, or is he just a great dictator? That he stayed in power so long. Well, you can just be brutal and right. eliminate the opposition. He's a great dictator, and and uh, yeah, it certainly hasn't created a democratic institution. I mean, the, the National Council, all those things, not elected for right. all these years, they have no power. And anybody who rises or anything that comes up, people don't know how how brutal the Palestinian Authority, the police are internally. You know, they diminished cooperation with Israel, although there were there was some more lately. 
but because it's in their interest. I mean, this is an opposition to them. It threatens their security as well. By the way, I don't know. I mean, this, this could be that I just didn't notice it before and that it's always happening, but I saw, I saw last night an ad on TV for Saudi Arabia to travel there. I mean, you would, you would think it's the most beautiful country in the world, which is fine. I mean, every country has a right to, you know, highlight what, what, you know, what, what their Department of Tourism feels is important to highlight. But if this is an effort now to open up to the world, then this really is going in the direction of the UAE, hopefully. I mean, if that's a sign, I mean, wouldn't you think that that's a sign to the Western world to try to encourage, you know, tourists from here to get to Saudi Arabia? They've done this for, for years. Yeah. They've had the uh, ads for come and visit Saudi Arabia. They, uh, and, and it is part of the process of opening up that uh, Crown Prince has, has initiated and highlighting some of the tourist sites and, and not just the religious tourist sites. You know, they have a big influx of people who come, uh, Muslims on the Hajj, to come to Mecca and Medina. But this is uh, an attempt to build up other uh, tourism, especially Western tourism, and to, to it also helps in their image and in people, you know, seeing Saudi Arabia in a different light. That think it's all sand and a few high-rise buildings. It's actually right. It's a lot of things. <laughs> I, to see. I said to Stacy, "This place looks great. Like it just looks so beautiful." Well, I tell you, we were there, and and there is a lot to see. It's. Um, you know, and a, and a lot will develop. The hotels there are right. really first class. Pesach in Saudi Arabia, just not this year. Um, this this Iranian diplomat who was uh, arrested because of the threatened uh, or 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 um, they discovered that he wanted to bomb this opposition rally in France. I, I, I'm telling you, and I always say this to you, and I think you always agree. I don't even know there are opposition rallies going on around the world against Iran. The media never tells us, and specifically if they're in Iran itself. That certainly we don't know about it. But I didn't realize that there are other cities around the world where people gather to express opposition to the current Iranian government. So there is, there are groups here, there are groups elsewhere. A former resident of of, Saudi, of uh, Iran. Uh, but first, let's talk about the internally inside uh, Iran. There are huge demonstrations. Last year, over six thousand, and it gets. Almost no coverage. Nothing. The bus drivers, for instance, went on strike against the government for weeks. And the, and the Basiji, the, the, the militia, the domestic militia, who are vicious, would go in and beat them up, and the people would throw them off the bus. Not the driver, the uh, Basiji. Right. Um, and that's just one manifestation. The, the, on uh, universities, which are half empty anyway, but... There are demonstrations all the time against the government, and they they do it demonstrably by throwing off the workers wearing Western clothes, listening to Western music, which most of which is banned anyway. There, then, uh, and then you have the ethnic minorities, like the Azeris, are 30 million people. Half the population in Iran are not Farsi speaking, not Iranian speaking. These are Baluchis and, as I said, Azeris, and Azeris are right now in the focus because of the war in the Karabakh, where uh, Azerbaijan, obviously with Iran, um, with the backing of Turkey and Israel's participation, but the the people in the Azeri districts really rose up, and it prevented, I think, Iran from coming in on the Armenian side. Here, you have uh, many intellectuals, Jewish and non-Jewish, who, who uh, oppose the government, but in Europe, they are, are much more active, and they've been... Uh, the victims of assassinations, mm. uh, dissidents in, in 
against the Iranian government are kidnapped in France, in Germany, taken to Turkey, smuggled to Iran. Many, many cases, uh, and, and many time intellectuals, but others who, who were outspoken against the regime. And the governments of France and all these countries know it. Sometimes they, they express, you know, some mild criticism. But they don't hold this to account and say that these don't, things don't stop. We're, you know, one, it's a violation of their sovereignty. And yet it goes on continuously. The, uh, there, there is a rising opposition, and this is a big concern for the Iranian government as they face an election in a short time, and hardliners are winning. They're, they're all hardliner candidates, just some dress differently, and, you know, like uh, Zarif, but they, they put on a smile. Mm-hmm. But he's no different than Ahmadinejad, who's running again, by the way, too, or trying to resurrect his political career, uh, and Rouhani. Uh, you look at the statements that Rouhani made just this week against the United States, against the um, he does against Israel. You know, they launched a three-stage missile, which is named for Mohammed's grandson, uh, and it's capable of carrying a very a 500-pound load uh, satellite. But they didn't launch it with a satellite because their interest, and they're saying it's for scientific research. Their interest is in delivering, is moving towards a ballistic missile capacity. This one probably a 3,100-mile 3, range. So think of the circumference of 3,100 miles around Iran, you can understand how many people come under, uh, uh, are under damage. And Rouhani said, we're not going to make any adjustments to the JCPOA, no changes, and no new countries, because there was talk of UAE and, and Saudi Arabia being brought into the, uh, into the, into the process. They, they have launched in Fordo and in Natanz all new cascades with the much more advanced um, centrifuges. I won't go into all the technicalities, but, but you know, Natanz is built underground. Fort was supposed right. to have been destroyed. <clears throat> it means that they increased by 10 times their, the speed with which they can enrich uranium. And, and they've also developed this uh, uranium met, metal, which is usually used in weapons production for a nuclear weapon. So, so many signs of the... And, and they openly boast of the fact that they're in violation by the amount of that they are producing and increasing uh, the production of enriched uranium. It would take months to undo all of this. It's not something you could turn off tomorrow mm-hmm. till they dismantle the places, till they are able to, to uh, take the, the stockpiles of enriched uranium and either ship them out or dilute them or do other things. And we know that they're under tremendous pressure. You know, most of their submarines are in dry dock. They have this advanced fleet of submarines, and mostly because they can't get the parts or because it's too expensive to continue to, to float it. So it shows the sanctions are impacting, and we just have to do much more that doesn't diminish their interventions elsewhere. The, the Iraqi foreign minister was there this week, and uh, you know, Rouhani uh, talked about opposing any foreign intimidation, et cetera, meaning the United States, and still keep bringing up Soleimani and the revenge for Su- uh, Soleimani's uh, death. The U.S., in the meantime, took away our aircraft carrier group, the Nimitz. It's yeah, back to Washington. And the question is, will the Eisenhower go there, which is in, in headed to the Mediterranean? There are others in uh, the Pacific that could come, uh, another uh, uh, aircraft carrier. But the question is, how do the Iranians then look at this? Do they see this as a diminution of American interest or willingness to stand up? Do they? Is it just a normal rotation and they understand that? Or do the countries in the region say, hey, we're back to the period where America was withdrawing from its responsibilities or, or its uh, position 
diminution of it, there is, in fact, uh, there was a sense that there was a threat uh, against President Trump and again for revenge on Soleimani, and that's why we moved aircraft carrier in there. We moved submarine groups, some of which is still there. Some of we still have capabilities there, but the aircraft carrier and the, the whole group around it was a real sign of, of power and of presence. All right, Malcolm, I thank you. Uh, just uh, on a very tight schedule this morning, but I must ask you, um, um, you noted that uh, we lost uh, many rabbinic leaders this week, unfortunately. Uh, just a word about, or by Dr. Torsky, uh, the courage and the uh, incredible foresight that he had to bring issues that the people wanted to uh, sweep under the rug to the attention of both the Jewish world and the world in general. His whole personal story is so remarkable. I had the privilege of meeting him and even appearing with him on the various platforms. He, uh, you know, his understanding of the world, but he, the fact that he had the credibility on both sides to be able to raise issues about addiction, about other things, and to to put it on the agenda. And he leaves a legacy of, I think, sixty books uh, that people should still get because it's just as relevant as from the time they wrote them, and and makes it accessible. And the whole idea of understanding that the stigmas we attach sometimes to these diseases is inappropriate and how families should get treatment and, and that it happens in every community and everywhere. But only awareness is a way to, to fight it and not resisting or rejecting the, the, even the notion of it. And I think he built that bridge and, and was able to be a courageous spokesman. Hopefully others will, will be able to carry that on. Great analysis. Malcolm, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, JM and the AM.